The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Merry Christmas, Bob Cratchit. And the same to you, Mr. Fred. Merry Christmas, Uncle. I said Merry Christmas, Uncle. <laughs> humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. Surely you don't mean that. I do. What's Christmas? But a time for buying things for which you have no need, no money. Time for finding yourself a year older, not an hour richer. <laughs> if I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips <laughs> should be boiled in his own pudding <laughs> and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. <laughs> Come now, Uncle. Neville, you keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Morning, London. It is Thursday, December the 20th, 2007. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show this morning. Here on CHRW, where you can call in 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on our Christmas theme today. Uh, don't usually talk about Christmas that often when I'm on the air, uh, looking at a, a few ba- basic areas of discussion, mainly, you know, the whole peace on earth concept that we hear promoted with a little extra vigor at this time of year. Of course, the spirit of giving and altruism versus selfishness, and we, we also want to talk a little later about the tragedy of Ebenezer Scrooge, who you just heard from uh, in that opening clip from the 1984 uh, production featuring George C. Scott as Scrooge, brilliantly played, of, of course, uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But first of all, you know, buying things, humbug, I don't know how you feel about Christmas. Christmas is basically, is it the icon of commercialism, as I heard Michael Corrin call it on a talk show the other day? Because I don't think he was being sarcastic. I think he was being quite, uh, well, that's one of the things it is. Now, I may be mistaken, but I believe this is only the second time ever I've discussed any issues related to Christmas or the holiday season on any sort of public broadcast of any sort. I recall way back when um, Jim Chapman, Jeff Schlemmer, and myself were still doing uh, Left, Right, and Center. And we spent uh, an hour on a Christmas show discussing the question, is Santa Claus a socialist? (laughs) And I argued that Santa's red suit and his propensity to give stuff away pretty well painted him as a socialist, while Jeff Schlemmer took the position that Santa was a greedy capitalist for forcing his elves to work in sweatshops and make toys and things like that. And, uh, well, the debate pretty well went down, downhill from there. No, I'm just kidding. It was very interesting, and, and you wouldn't be, you wouldn't, you know, you'd be quite surprised at the issues that can arise, and some of them I think we'll touch upon today. Now, I have to be honest with you, but uh, despite anything you might hear me saying about Christmas and, and, you know, a lot of people's traditions and beliefs, I generally like Christmas and the holiday season. Yeah, I get that warm, fuzzy feeling that a lot of people get, and I know it's not a great time for everyone. There's stress, and some people are depressed at this time of year, but you know, these are the the vagaries of life, and uh, just when Christmas hits, that's what you've got to deal with. But for me, Christmas is mostly about getting together with family and friends during the holiday season, and of course, particularly on Christmas Day, if you can do so. I actually have a Christmas tree up in my house this year, complete with traditional religious symbols, believe it or not, as some decorations and some very untraditional uh, non-religious symbols on it as well. I'm not offended by any particular traditions of any religion or culture at this time of year, per se, since I think there are many positive associations and even truths to be found within a lot of them. However, you'll recall that last week I started the show briefly by talking about the distinction between truths and reality. You know, a religious celebration of the season may have some truths or moral lessons in the stories behind the celebration. 
But uh, it'd be hard to argue that there's that much reality once you get the historians talking about how, you know, the real history of Christmas, etc. You can get some pretty good arguments going on all sides of the debate. But, you know, are, are the uh, lessons and the implicit messages that we pick up during the season, um, you know, those that we regard as being good, are, are they really that? I think it's worth an examination. You know, Christmas and the holiday season do have other issues associated with them, issues that extend, I think, throughout the year. So for those of you who think Christmas should be all year long, well, you've already been getting your wish for quite some time now, if uh, you'll understand what I mean as we get into this a little later. But if you think Ebenezer Scrooge has reserved the best humbug for the season, uh, consider the following humbug offered by well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Hitchens, of course, is author of the best-selling book, came out just a while back, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, was the name of the book. And his, his article appeared in the National Post December 5th, 07, and it was headlined, Bah, uh, to Hanukkah, of all things. And the subheading read, The festive-seeming holiday actually celebrates the triumph of tribal Jewish backwardness. Now, there's already been some response to his, uh, his comments in the same paper, of course, and the headline of that reads, Bah Hitchens. So everybody's yelling back and forth at each other. But in his sort of, you know, historical look at uh, some of the things that we celebrate this time of year. Most people look at Christianity. I I will be doing that too. But he talked about how, you know, how the Seleucid Empire and inheritance of Alexander the Great had had basically weaned many people away, quote, from the sacrifices, the circumcisions, the belief in a special relationship with God and other reactionary manifestations of an ancient and cruel faith. Hitchens, uh, end quote. Hitchens takes a shot, apparently, at a certain rabbi, Lerner, who, in calling for a restoration of, quote, what he actually calls old-time religion, knows what he hates. And uh, here Hitchens is quoting the rabbi, quote, along with Greek science and military prowess came a whole culture that celebrated beauty, both in art and in the human body, presented in the world with the triumph of rational thought in the works of Plato and Aristotle and rejoiced in the complexities of life presented in the theater of Aeschylus, Euripides, and Aristophanes. But away with all that, says Lerner, according to Hitchens, preferring fundamentalist thuggery to secularism and philosophy, end quote. Now, Hitchens argues that, uh, you know, had it not been for the Roman annexation of Judea way back in history, we, we would never have had to hear of anything about uh, a Jesus of Nazareth or his sect, which he, of course, says is a plagiarism from fundamental Judaism. To celebrate not just the triumph of tribal Jewish backwardness, quote, he says, but also the accidental birth of Judaism's bastard child in the shape of Christianity. Boy, this guy, he, d- he doesn't have any, uh, any reservations in the terms of how he puts things. But here's, here's the point. He says, we are about to have the annual culture war about the display of cribs, mangers, conifers, and other symbols on public land. Most of this argument is phony and tawdry and secondhand and has nothing whatever to do with, quote, faith, as its protagonists understand it. The burning of a Yule log or the display of a Scandinavian tree is nothing more than paganism and the observance of winter solstice. It makes no more acknowledgment of the Christian religion than I do, and that's Hitchens talking. Everyone knows further that there was no moving star in the east, that Quirinius was not the governor of Syria at the time of King Herod, that no worldwide tax census was conducted in that period of the rule of Augustus, and that no, quote, stable, end quote, is mentioned even in any of the mutually contradictory books of the New Testament. This is childish stuff, argues Hitchens, and if only for that reason, should obviously not receive any public endorsement or financing. The display of the menorah at this season, however, has a precise meaning as an explicit celebration of the original victory of a bloody-minded faith over enlightenment and reason, end quote. Wow, well, he, got, he took his in the in the following day's paper when a bunch of people wrote in to, uh, of course, counter his point of view. And interestingly enough, just a brief review of some of those letters, I note that um, most of them really didn't touch on anything that Hitchens said. They, you know, people really bring their prejudices to the table and often miss the point. However, one person, one of the writers here, who's that, Eric 
Eric Lawley of uh, York University, coordinator of Jewish studies. He's, he says, uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, evinces no awareness of the ways in which religious traditions imbue past events and rituals with new meanings. And that, I think, speaks to the, the fluidity of, of religions and the way they change over time, and that, that things that were traditions in the past that had a particular meaning may today still be a tradition but have a completely different meaning. And that's really what happened to the whole pagan festival thing. I mean, all the other religions sort of latched on to what people were already doing. It's like the Internet. You want to get some traffic? You go to the site where everybody's already at. You don't try and start from scratch and, and uh, you know, do that kind of thing. But uh, so that's Hitchens, uh, you know, really letting loose on, on uh, the whole Christmas, or, or actually Hanukkah. But, of course, the, the timing of Christmas on December 25th has really nothing to do with Christ's, quote, birthday, which seems to be the consensus among historians who generally agree that Christ would have been born in the spring, most likely in March, Though how they arrive at this conclusion, I don't know, really. I don't know if it could be much more accurate than picking December 25th in the first place. But, of course, we do know about this time of year uh, that it was known to be a pagan festival date and a celebration of the harvest, which basically is a harvest created by the minds and bodies of all those so-called pagans, if you would. Uh, you know, however, every year at this time, we do hear the usual crowd that uh, who insists, and I'll give you some examples of what I've heard on some talk shows and seen in letters, like, for example, quote, we must give to others instead of getting for ourselves. Quote, Christmas has become too commercial. Jesus is the reason for the season. Put Christ back into Christmas. Spiritualism, not materialism. You know, you, you hear these sentiments uh, come out every year at Christmas. What's, I think, eternally interesting to observe, however, is how those most identified as being secular uh, tend to be far more tolerant of different interpretations of symbols of Christmas season than do uh, people who hold strong religious convictions. Sometimes uh, I heard someone use the term spiritual arrogance is being practiced at this time of year by some people when they, you know, they want to put their meaning onto Christmas. Somebody else has a different uh, interpretation of it, and that can create a lot of unnecessary conflict, which, of course, is not what Christmas is supposed to be all about in the first place. For my part, I say bah and humbug to all those who condemn commercialism of Christmas season, of the Christmas season. And I think most of them are being a little bit hypocritical when they do so, since you can't really, I think, separate commercialism from the whole spirit of giving and receiving. Because I see them as, as one and the same activity. They're not different from each other. Hello, you know, like, for goodness sake, people. When you give and you receive, you, what, do you, what, do you, what are you going to give? If it's a material thing, you're either going to make it yourself or you've got to buy it. And, you know, we can make things, but even with the things we make, we have to buy the material somewhere. So there's commercialism involved in every step. Man, you know, human beings are commercial creatures. This is a major thing that separates us from the animals. The animals don't trade in uh, the, the sense that people do. And, uh, you know, it's just that uh, the, the whole concept is uh, very interesting about commercial. I was, I was looking at uh, some statistics. It says the average person, that's average, spends between 700 and $800 each season, each Christmas season, for Christmas presents. And, of course, we're still really celebrating uh, the pagan harvest in a way, which I see as the reality under the guise of many beliefs, which I see as the symbol or the representation of the season, and that's, you know, everybody adopts their own symbol and belief, but the reality is that we celebrate our life here on this planet, don't we? Just as other religions attach themselves to uh, the pagan celebrations, I, I think there's no reason why those same annual celebrations couldn't be placed in the light of reason, let us say, and, and a celebration of the material things that the power of science and reason and technology have brought to us. We take these things for granted, and we think that, uh, you know, they're somehow evil things in a way. Interestingly, on this point, I know that uh, uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever has a fascinating YouTube presentation. If you look it up, it's called Reasons Harvest. And it may interest and amuse those of you open to this point of view on the holiday season. If you get a chance, check it out. I've heard some pretty good stuff about it, and it's not your usual uh, YouTube type of presentation. Now, of course... Another great symbol of Christmas, and this is what I want to get at next, is the, is the Charles Dickens character of Ebenezer Scrooge, whose name has basically become 
almost synonymous with anyone who doesn't like Christmas or who isn't generous and who's, uh, you know, whose greed is basically the cause of everybody else's misery. That's a Scrooge. And the word is used so widely. Do you remember uh, Scrooge McDuck from the Walt Disney characters, the Donald Duck cartoons and the comic books? Uh, he had this, you know, this vault full of cash, and he measured that he measured by how many feet deep it was. I think it was a few hundred feet deep. I don't know if it went into the basement or it was in a high rise. I forget, but uh, it was huge, and he'd always be, you know, flopping around in it like somebody in a big uh, tub or something. And he never shared a cent with Donald or even with his uh, nephews Huey, Dewey, and Louie, if that's who they were. Members of his own family. So this guy was a real Scrooge. And Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck's money, of course, just sat there doing nothing. And, and, you know, I think this is the very image that characterizes wealthy business people to the broad masses in a, in a funny sort of way. I know it's a caricature, but it is it deeply in an, it's an ingrained feeling you get about a lot of people about business and why they think people in business are inherently evil. And that's something else I want to talk about. But is it really true? I intend to challenge this view of Scrooge. And with that in mind, I will return after this excerpt from the 1984 production of Dickens' A Christmas Carol with uh, the incredible George C. Scott in the role of Scrooge himself, and this is what he has to say. Uh, Mr. Scrooge, I presume. Indeed you do, sir. You don't know us. Nor do I wish to. My name is Poole, and this is Mr. Hackett. Excellent. Now, if you'll allow me to pass. Uh, let me explain, sir. At this festive season of the year, it seems desirable that those of us with means should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at this time. Provision? Are you seeking money from me, then? Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. The workhouses, they're still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor houses, still in full vigor? All very busy, sir. <laughs> I was afraid from what you said, that something had stopped them in full force. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and food and warmth. Oh, what can we put you down for, sir? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. My taxes help to support the public institutions which I have mentioned, and they cost enough. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, perhaps they had better do so, and uh, decrease the surplus population. Surely you don't mean that, sir. With all my heart. Now, if you will go about your business, gentlemen, and allow me to go about mine. If he is to die, then let him die and decrease the surplus population. You use my own words against me. So perhaps in the future you will hold your tongue until you have discovered what the surplus population is and where it is. It may well be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Wow, there's a condemnation for you. Poor old Ebenezer Scrooge is worse than millions of other people. And for doing what exactly? Before we answer that question, by the way, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz. This is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call in at 519-661-3600 or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Now, I think to understand a little bit about Scrooge and the whole story behind that, you have to know a little bit about uh, the author of the of the whole story. Uh, um, you know, the uh, Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol starring, uh, which is where the character Scrooge came from. Now, I just did a quick research on uh, Dickens, and, you know, he was born in Portsmouth, England in 1812. 
and apparently his father and his family spent much time in debtor's prison, which probably characterized a lot of his perspective on, on life. And uh, he was himself employed in a warehouse. And they went through this period of struggle, and apparently after this period of struggle, Dickens attended a fairly respectable private academy and then was apprenticed to a solicitor, which is, apparent, which is where he was when uh, not long after he began doing reporting for various London newspapers. And this eventually led to his pen pictures called Sketches by Boz, which were so popular that his publishers immediately demanded more of him, and uh, from that the Pickwick Papers was born, and that was a result of that. Dickens died in June 1870, so from 1812 to 1870, that's the period of Charles Dickens. Now, Christmas Carol was actually a short story written by Dickens in 1834 while he was on a sojourn in Italy. The author, Dickens, of course, is well known and and has achieved basically literary immortality with uh, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two City, Great Expectations, which was a book I took in high school, great book, still remember it to to this day. And, of course, that one is considered by many critics as uh, the best book of his books from an artistic standpoint. But, of course, this was the period of England's industrialization, a period when the science of Newtonian law sort of unleashed this whole period of mechanization, which increased production in a manner that was previously not experienced in recorded human history. And uh, it was basically the birth of capitalism in a certain way. Now, this era has very much been misrepresented by many, many historians, and a lot of people have a an almost romantic idea that the period before industrialization was was you know so somehow agricultural and you know idyllic and peaceful when when in fact that's not really that accurate a picture in fact i refer to an essay written back in the 60s even and this is written by robert hessen which appeared in uh, it's called child labor in the industrial revolution which also which is one of the essays that appeared in ayn rand's capitalism the unknown ideal And he talks about how in the transition from the pre-capitalist era to the capitalist era, England's factory system, quote, led to a rise in the general standard of living to to rapidly falling urban death rates and decreasing infant mortality. And it produced a, a very unprecedented population explosion. This is interesting. In 1750, England's population was 6 million. It was 9 million in 1800 and 12 million in 1820, a rate of increase without precedent in any previous era. The age distribution of the population shifted enormously. The proportion of children and youths increased sharply. The proportion of those born in London, this is London, England, dying before five years of age, fell from 74.5% in 1730 to 1749 period to 31.8 percent in 1810 to 29 period. Now, can you imagine three out of four kids dying basically in childbirth or very shortly thereafter? That in itself is something that very few people could even relate to in today's modern world. And it seems to have been erased from memory entirely. Uh, And it wasn't even that long ago, and this was still happening even in the 1900s, certainly, and still happening today in a lot of the area of the so-called third world. But uh, getting back to England of this period, both the rising population and the rising life expectancy, according to the author, he says that kind of proves that, you know, the conditions for the laboring classes were, were getting better, not getting worse, as so many historians have been trying to portray. And Hessen comments, quote, but one is both morally unjust and ignorant of history. If one blames capitalism for the condition of children during the Industrial Revolution, since in fact capitalism brought an enormous improvement over their condition in the preceding age, the source of that injustice was ill-informed emotional novelists and poets like none other than Charles Dickens, Mrs. Browning, Fancy medievalists like Southey, political tract writers posturing as economic historians such as Engels and Marx, who all painted this vague, rosy picture of a lost golden age of the working classes which allegedly was destroyed by the Industrial Revolution. 
Historians, of course, have not supported uh, supported these assertions. And, uh, you know, he basically argues that just take a look at the history and common sense will kind of de-glamorize that period for you pretty good. And, uh, of course, it's harsh by today's standards. In fact, I was doing some other reading on the side, and in, in the period before that, um, who were they referring to? Was it Adam Smith or someone in the 1600s was suggesting at the time that children should be put to work by three years of age because that's how desperate things were. You, you carried your own weight or you, or, you, or you just didn't make it. And so that's another reason I think the, the, the mortality rate was so high for kids. They didn't give them hard work in the sense of putting them in camps and stuff. Apparently most of the work, if you were in a factory, amounted to holding the twine or, or tying knots and things like that when things broke. But uh, nevertheless, it's brutal by today's standards, but it was better than what preceded. And that's so important to, to always keep in mind. Now... So getting back to Scrooge now, we we see this image of Scrooge where, you know, he's this horrible person and he's, uh, according to the fellow, worse than anybody on the face of the earth in the eyes of heaven, which is an interesting condemnation. But uh, nevertheless, I th- when, when I was watching, I'm only going by the movie, the one with George C. Scott. I read the, the, the short story many years ago, and of course they're pretty faithful to it. I've seen two or three interpretations, and they're not that different. And given that, I would have to say Dickens was at least how would I put it, emotionally um, faithful to his character. He gave a a sort of, painted a picture of a real person, or maybe that was more George C. Scott doing the job. But as we watch the story and we learn about Scrooge, we find out that Scrooge's father held him responsible for his mother's death because she died in childbirth while having Scrooge. Scrooge's fiancée left him before they were married because she viewed his, uh, you know, his growing wealth as something attractive, but she resented the sacrifices necessary on Scrooge's part to acquire and accumulate that wealth. As she put it, you know, he cares more about profit than about her, as she so selfishly observed. But that was the situation with Scrooge, and he thought it was a very responsible thing to be looking after your money and being careful with things. But despite the tragedies in his life, and there were many more, he remained a profoundly moral man, you know, expecting value for value and honoring his commitments in his business community of which he was part. Now, that he may have been lonely and withdrawn and unhappy, I would say is quite likely. But these were not the reasons that he found him subject, himself subject to the uh, moral judgments of the community and his family surrounding him. You know, you use my words against me, Scrooge confesses, though not guilty, because in those very two clips that I picked today that I played, they changed the words in the second one. You know, in the first one, he did not say, actually, his words were twisted, you know, the the ghost of the Christmas past, I guess that was, uh, to redirect Scrooge's own criticism for those in need who would choose death over being helped by someone else besides him, to meaning something entirely different and unrelated, namely that Scrooge himself was responsible for creating those in need practically. But uh, consider the degree of his guilt, you know, and the nature of his crime. What did he really do? Why was everybody so upset with Scrooge? Because he had money. He had wealth. You know, at no time are we led to believe that Scrooge ever defrauded anyone, failed to honor a business commitment, failed to pay his employees what was agreed between them, uh, and certainly didn't perpetrate violence on anyone, or, or for that matter, didn't make himself dependent on anyone else either. You know, he created his own wealth by himself, by acquiring the wisdom and the habits that those who envied his wealth somewhat despised. And of course, without his wealth, Scrooge would have been of no concern to anyone. Let's face it. Uh, people would have left him alone, which is all that he really wanted. It's funny, while that clip was playing, Ira was, uh, Ira Timothy was mentioning to me on the, on the mic, he says, you know, sometimes I want to tell people I just want to be left alone. And, and it's absolutely true. That's exactly what Scrooge wanted, and that's all he wanted. And, and, but for, have, for, for the crime of having money, uh, people would stop him in the street, not let him pass. Uh, you know, it was all very symbolic, and you could see that this guy was just being picked upon because, of course, he had he had money. And of course, this this leads to the whole mentality of poverty and and what causes poverty. And there's this uh, mythology out there that preaches, and it's preached by socialism and other isms as well, but mainly socialism. Um, 
that people are poor because, you know, greedy capitalists have been exploiting them for untold centuries. Uh, well, just this is just not true. And it, it's been my experience to observe that for the most people, or for the most part, rather, m most people are poor not because of what others have done to them, but because of what they either have or haven't done for themselves. Uh, poverty, if you're talking about a uh, lack of material wealth, is really a natural state of existence because it, it requires no effort to achieve any sort of poverty. It's pretty easy. Just sit there. You know, you know, poverty will visit your door quicker, quicker, quicker than any of those ghosts in, in the Scrooge movie, let me tell you. Uh, poverty is certainly not caused by those who choose to elevate themselves above it. However, what happens at that point is that poverty becomes visible when there is wealth created by someone with which to compare it. And it is the visibility factor that causes very perception-bound people to view the creation of wealth by some as the cause of poverty by others. Now, you know, contrary to this dogma, I think the elimination of poverty can only come about through the creation of wealth, obviously, which requires intelligence, initiative, risk, effort, hard work, and maybe a few more Scrooges in our society. Not, the, not in the sense of the mood and, and his miserableness, which was cured by the end of that show, by the way. He became very generous because he got something personal out of it, and he, he broke through that barrier of, of his own misery, which had nothing to do with his earning the money per se. But, you know, to illustrate that sort of socialist mentality towards poverty, consider, for example, two castaways on a deserted island. We'll call them Peter and Paul. While Paul chooses to, you know, to wait, to be saved, Peter plants a garden, builds a hut, saves his produce for harder times, figuring that they might be stuck on this island for a while. Begrudgingly, Peter shares some small percentage of his produce to keep Paul from starving, but gives Paul no more than is necessary to, sa than, you know, than to save him from starvation. Paul's got no hut, no stored food, and no means of production, you know, like a garden or something, to produce any food. Now, I just set up this scenario as, as an illustration in principle. Now, a socialist would come along and view this situation, and the first thing he might see would be, oh my goodness, economic disparity. Good grief, Peter is wealthy, while Paul exists in poverty. And poor Paul must rely on charity for his subsistence. Isn't that terrible? A social injustice. So, instead of properly condemning Paul for failing to take responsibility for his own survival, the socialist would morally condemn Peter for being productive and for not being concerned enough with the plight of Paul. And it is very understandable that they must do this. Because whenever you have to justify robbing somebody unjustly, and if you want to rob Peter to pay Paul, okay, it is important that you morally denigrate Peter. Because it's just unjust if you know he's a good man and he hasn't done anything good and he's not guilty of anything to just walk up to him and take his money away from him. Okay, so, you know, after all, you know, even robbing Peter for his virtue might even offend a socialist. So it's a prerequisite, almost, of socialism that productivity and the creation of wealth be viewed in a negative moral light. And that's so much what's ha happening behind the Green Movement today. And, uh, and that's why, you know, anytime you want to breathe even is becoming a sin because it creates CO2. So, you know, is it any wonder with this kind of thinking that socialism is a failure both in theory and in practice, you know? But that's what we have in this country today. We don't share. Sharing is supposed to be a voluntary thing, time of year when you share, you know, voluntarily. When governments are doing your sharing for you, it's not voluntary anymore, and it certainly isn't charity. Take a break now, and we come back after this. Altruism versus selfishness on a slightly different plane. We'll be looking at some other angles on this, and we'll be back right after this short break. I'm off to the exchange. Don't lock up a moment early. Yes. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If it's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient. And it's not fair. If I were to hold back half a crown from your pay for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. But you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. Christmas comes but once a year, sir. Poor excuse picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Well, I suppose you must have it.
hate to shop, I, especially holidays when you have to get gifts. I never get good gifts. I think the best gift I ever gave, and Dad's getting up there, getting older, you never know. So the kids, we all got together, we said, you know what, this year, let's do something special for Dad. Let's, let's do something for Dad that he wouldn't do for himself. So we put him in the home. <laughs> See, that's a gift keeps right on giving. <laughs> My dad was so happy, I never saw him cry like that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that so true? You know, like, uh, like who was that present for, I wonder, eh? And that sort of leads into the, the, the theme of our next section here, altruism versus selfishness. Is it really better to give than to receive? Because, you know, that's a premise we kind of accept without even thinking about it. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will still be with you for another 25 minutes or so till noon. And uh, 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join us. in this question, this actually came up when we were talking about it with Jeff Schlemmer in that show we talked about on whether Santa Claus was a socialist or not. But the issue was was brought up, is it better to give than to receive? We always hear this uh, basic axiom as though, yeah, it's better to, to, to give than to receive. It's almost the mark of the season. But consider what that might mean. I think there's a lot of... Uh, use of altruism and giving often. You have to be careful you don't use it as a weapon or as a symbol of status or power, which is often what a lot of giving is about, or doing something for yourself, as was humorously illustrated in that little clip we just played. But when you say, is it better to give than to receive, if by better, if you're referring to some kind of higher moral plane, then clearly the person on the receiving end of the gift would be on a lower moral plane. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if it's better, if it's better to give than to receive, that means the guy giving the present is better than the guy getting it, right? That's what it has to mean. If by better we're referring to the giver having greater wealth, then again the recipient of the gift is the person of lesser wealth. Either way, uh, you know, you can see that there's a humiliation theory behind often giving, which is something that uh, author Howard Bloom in, uh, in his book, The Lucifer Principle, talked about, uh, talking about when, especially when governments do foreign aid and stuff, they can often be doing a lot of damage um, in terms of their relationships with countries, because it may not often be the compassionate gesture as it appears on the surface. Often um, giving gifts, especially when governments do it to one one to another, there's all kinds of uh, conditions attached, and usually the giver gets a little bit more than he's getting. He's making a deal there if he can. But another person that uh, talked about altruism on a more, much more personal level is someone I've mentioned before, writer John McMurray, who writes a lot about personal issues and motivation and uh, reason, emotion, and just basically what motivates people. And he talks about, uh, basically, he says that one of the commonest ways, believe it or not, of being self-centered is to put other people in your debt by doing things for them. And he points out that this, uh, this, is, this refers to a lot of people who kind of live very un, unreally. They have this unreality that's very quite compatible with what is ordinarily called unselfishness, or maybe what we'd call altruism. And he says, any of you who have lived with people who insist upon serving you and subordinating themselves to you and doing things for you all the time, you must know from experience, perhaps from bitter experience, he suggests, how such a person can sap your strength and vitality and make your life a misery. Uh, yeah, sometimes when you get somebody who's overly generous and always wanting to do things for, for you, the, you want to say the same thing that Scrooge is saying, leave me alone, you know. But very selfless people are often very unreal people, says McMurray, however good they may uh, appear to be on the surface, because in a lot of ways they're turned in upon themselves. And he refers to this kind of, of thinking, you know, of always doing things for others as the voice of social morality. And I'll certainly come back to this later because McMurray ha- categorizes morality in various ways that are not typical but are very useful in, in, in observing uh, certain dimensions of it. But he talks about the voice of social morality being one that always talks about service, of self-devotion, of self-sacrifice. 
And he says, quote, our duty to serve others, to serve our country, to serve humanity. It tells us to think of ourselves always as members of the community and of the community as developing towards a higher type of human life sometime in the future. And it is a morality of service, and he, he calls it a false morality. And it's always, of course, that's what you always hear about uh, when, you, when governments and politicians and tyrants of the past even have always asked their citizens to sacrifice. It was always for something that would pay off in the future that very rarely did, almost never. And it's always that future thing that you never get. You don't, you don't get to live life for itself, so to speak. But um, McMurray asks the question, why, why is it that the ideal of social service and self-devotion to, uh, to the progress of humanity is a false ideal? Why, why would he even suggest that? And here he gets to the point that I was getting at earlier. He says, because we can't be unselfish if no one is prepared to be selfish. Now, doesn't that make sense? So if you want to make the service of others an ideal of good conduct, then you're going to have to insist upon a lot of people being selfish enough to let others serve them. Okay? Now, normally that's not a problem. <laughs> uh, we all want someone to serve us, and we normally do that on a free market through trade, you know, and we're giving them something, they're giving us something. But basically, uh, McMurray would argue that this morality of service and self-sacrifice to the community is just a denial of human reality because it treats people as a means to an end. And he says, if men are at their best when they are servants, then slavery is the proper condition of human life. And if this purpose is not their own, but the purpose of society or government or some other agency, so then that's even worse still, end quote. Now that he wrote back in the 1930s, now we come up to more current time, talking about uh, giving and altruism, and I ran into this fascinating article from, again, The Economist, under the Science and Technology section of all things. And the heading reads, Blatant Benevolence and Conspicuous Consumption. And it's from The Economist, August 4th, and it says, Charity is just as selfish as self-indulgence. Things are seldom what they seem, says the article. And I quote here, it says, Altruism, according to the textbooks, has two forms. One is known technically as kin selection and familiarly as nepotism. The second form is a reciprocal altruism, or you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And it relies on trust and is a good, you know, and a good memory, you know, for the favors that you've given and received, but it's otherwise not much different from uh, simultaneous collaboration and that the benefit exceeds the cost for all parties involved. So, that that they would call that altruism, I, I don't even, I, I wouldn't. I, again, that's a trade, you know, if, if each side's getting something greater than, at least that they value greater than what they're putting in, that's a trade. I don't see any altruism or self-sacrifice being made in that, but nevertheless. Now, they they identify a third sort of altruism, and then this is, you know, peculiar to humans, they say. And it is the one that has no obvious payoff. And this is altruism towards strangers and, uh, for example, charity. And they suggest that at first sight, helping charities looks to be at the opposite end of the selfishness spectrum from conspicuous consumption. Because, you know, you, you think, well, the person's really not benefiting from this. Um, but here's what they surprisingly have found. In a paper just studied in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Dr. Jeffrey Miller has studied altruism towards strangers and discovered, of all things, that this type of altruism has a lot to do with human mating rituals. Can you imagine that? It's got to do with sexuality. And men and women, it seems, express this sort of altruism quite differently. Men in the form of profligate spending and women in the form of being very helpful and volunteering and doing things for people. And in the experiments conducted in two separate studies, it was discovered that, quote, only when it counts sexually are men profligate and women helpful, end quote. So they go on to say that these two studies support the idea that's familiar from everyday life that what women want in a partner is material support, while men sort of require what they refer to as self-sacrifice. Conspicuous consumption allows men to demonstrate the former, Blatant benevolence allows w women to demonstrate the latter. There is, however, says the article, one confounding observation. 
And that refers to the most blatant benevolence of all, that of, you know, you hear about billionaires giving away their fortunes and heroes giving away or at least risking their lives. Apparently, this is an almost entirely male phenomenon, according to the studies. And uh, why that may be is, I, I think, probably the subject for another study or whether it's even that accurate. It may just be the accident of history so far and that women haven't even been treated as equals among men for, you know, except for the recent capitalistic period that we've had. But uh, who's to know? Uh, I, I once remember, too, there was, uh, oh, what's the name of the author I read way back when? It might have been Robert Ringer or one of those guys that was popular. Remember in the 70s, they, they were writing a lot of uh, books about personal help and you know self-help and investing and all that kind of stuff. And I remember one of them, I think it was Robert Ringer, I might be wrong, but he, you know, he, was, he was sort of asking, should you buy your friends? You know, is, is buying your friends the right things to do? And he, he would argue, yeah, it's exactly what you do. That's what makes them your friend. Uh, you don't think about it that way that you're buying friends per se. But um, nevertheless, he says that's often what we're doing when we, uh, when we give them something that they value. And that might just be the friendship itself. We're not always talking about money when we're talking about values. Okay, so we're going to continue with our theme on Christmas, and we're going to get to the big one, Peace on Earth, right after this break. <laughs> I've had weird Christmases. Our first Christmas together, kind of bizarre, my new wife and I, we, uh, we had Christmas in Millet, Alberta. <laughs> Obviously, you guys do not know where that is. <laughs> Oh, man. Millet, Alberta. Swimming pools, movie stuff. <laughs> the oddest gift that I got, I got a vasectomy for Christmas. <laughs> kind of the gift that stops the giving, really. and salutes the spirit of Christmas. That's uh, a great time of the year to do that. Sure is. It'll sure look strange uh, seeing a Christmas show on spring reruns. Well, never mind about that. It's just the whole point. Christmas shouldn't just be in December, but it should be all year long. Wow, we couldn't afford that. Well, now, you see, too many people forget what Christmas spirit is really all about. Oh, tell me about it, won't you? <laughs> I fully intend to. I thought you would. Yes. Now, it all started in a little town in Bethlehem. It all started in a little town in Bethlehem. Little town of Bethlehem. A uh, good name for a song. Yeah, all right. Now, many years ago, the world was troubled with many pressing problems. Well, no wonder they didn't have drip-dry suits then. Now, this is serious, Dick. People were riding in the streets. There was civil disorder, injustice, oppression of minority groups. Well, I'm certainly glad they cleared all that up. Yeah, we sure cleared all that up, eh? You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Thanks for joining us. We'll be here for another few minutes, uh, 10 or 11 minutes or so. Uh, Christmas should be all year long, and peace on earth. These are themes we hear at this time of year. In that, uh, you know, you're talking about peace on earth, and, and you begin to wonder. I, was, I clipped an article, Michael Corr, November 3rd, London Free Press. Uh, Brit leftists go bonkers, he says. They're ready to ditch Christmas to improve race relations. That's the, the byline. And Corrin argues that a new report from the think tank of the governing Labour Party in Britain states that, quote, Britain is no longer a Christian nation, and Christmas should be downgraded in favor of festivals from other religions to improve race relations. If we are going to continue as a nation to mark Christmas, the report says, then public organizations should make other religious festivals, or, or mark other religious festivals too, it says. Of course, which by marking festivals, that means more government spending and more paid holidays. And I think that's the real reason that we see that spirit of giving coming from that group there. But uh, here goes... Uh, uh, Corn again, and here's that reference again, quote, So the pre-enlightened Ebenezer Scrooge has told us what Britain should become. But unlike the products of Charles Dickens' generous and compassionate imagination, the spirits behind this report are nasty, intolerant, and crude. So what of Canada, he asks? There might still be time to save Canada the Great, but only if we jettison the humbug. <laughs> so there you see that, uh, you know, that eternal... Dickens' ref reference always to, to the Scrooge uh, thing, even in, in, in other references. Uh, 
Now, here's a little bit of politics about giving. Uh, Dana Knight of Gannett News Services, London Free Press, December 10th. Greeting cards at holidays, at holiday time, can offend. Sending a religious card with good intentions that ends up offending a client could damage or even destroy a client relationship, says Craig Borowski, associate with Baker and Daniels, who concentrates his practice on employment issues. It could be a sign that you don't know the client as well as you should. If, for example, you send a Hanukkah card to a Christian or a Christmas card to someone of the Jewish faith. The purpose of greeting cards in the workplace is about strengthening relationships, he says. Uh, That's true. I don't think it'd be all that untrue about personal relationships as well if you're into doing that kind of thing in the first place. Same day's free press, another heading right beside the other one, said ethics attached to receiving and giving gifts. Uh, How true, and I thought maybe they might be getting into what we've talked about before, but no, they go on to a different area. This is by Anita Bruzies, also of the Gannett News Services. And she argues that accepting gifts that are over the top are ones that may force you to move your personal integrity meter in the, in the wrong direction may eventually come back to harm your career. And she says that uh, giving also raises ethical questions. A gift should be something that deepens a connection, something that's meaningful and isn't meant to take advantage of or influence another person. And one of the rules they stuck to here was that you should give a gift to a person that they could afford on their own. You know, unless, of course, if your dad giving your son a car or something, that might be something different. Uh, of course, that'd be a close relationship. But on in an arm's length distance, again, you can see the danger you can get into. It's all about that power play. Giving and receiving is not as simple a thing as it seems. And I think that might be part of what we hear in that Christmas tension that goes around in the season. Because people are, these these things are actually going on in the back of your mind, even though you might not be consciously thinking about them all the time. Now, you know, in terms of peace on earth, I refer again to Howard Bloom from the Lucifer Principle. And he says, you know, he says there's a real flaw behind our belief that by eliminating hunger and elevating the income of the third world, that those things will, you know, peace will descend upon the earth. Or that by eradicating starvation and poverty at home, that will cause muggings and murders to sort of melt away. You know, he did a study of history, and he found out that uh, history indicates that a rising standard of living and the bigger plate of food may be very, the very catalysts that unleash a storm of violence, as he puts it. And he, he quotes himself, or I quote him as saying here, Wars, or, or War and dreams of conquest are fueled, it seems, less by poverty than by the heady whiff of new riches. In other words, he refers to uh, historical cases where, you know, one nation may be poor or relatively poor to another. They notice another nation is getting riches. Hey, there's a reason to go and attack them because we can get some booty and get some stuff that, you know, other people did. But there you go. There's another example of uh, on, on an international scale. And uh, he says this about foreign aid as well. And I've, I've discussed this once before on the show, you know, how we explain it, our gifts are development funds designed to bring peace by uprooting the very causes of discontent and war. And we call this new form of aid foreign aid. And in many cultures, he says, however, you know, giving things to people is a way of humiliating them. It's a sneaky technique for drawing attention to the recipient's lowliness on the hierarchical ladder. Compassionate gestures often have a purpose we seldom admit. They confirm our feeling of superiority, gratifying us with the certainty that those who receive our help are indeed below us. And this often makes the recipients loathe us. They'd gladly exchange the food and blankets we send for the opportunity to look down upon their benefactors. And this is often an attitude we see coming out of you know, the current war and crisis in the Mideast. And he argues here, by the way, this was written long before all that broke out to the extent it is today. He says the fathers of our foreign policy feel that by alleviating hunger, poverty and disease, we can pull the pins out from under the urge to shed blood and make the third world love us. And he says this philosophy has not worked. Humiliation and the insidious force of the giveaway can trigger super organistic cataclysm. So I guess this Christmas, you better make sure that you don't trigger a cataclysm by giving the wrong kind of gift this year. Now, I've only got a couple of minutes left in the show, and I haven't really uh, talked about too much. First of all, if I'm correct, and Ira, you can, you can, uh, you can correct me if I'm incorrect, 
I understand that this will be our last live show for a couple of weeks, and uh, you're gonna there'll be uh, not reruns. We won't call them that. They'll be the best of, right? That's right. The Pl- best of Bob Metz for uh, the next two weeks. For that. That's for the next two weeks, right? Yes, it is. And so then I'll be back live here. If I've calculated it correct, that would be January the 10th. Is that right? Unless we lock you up, Bob. Yeah, well, you never know, eh? If if I'm still around. Okay, so th- that's something that we should know. I, I, I just wanted to, you know, take this opportunity, um, basically, uh, you know, to uh, discuss a little bit about the show itself. Uh, Ira says i got about five minutes here. And first of all, before I forget, I would certainly like to say a heartfelt thank you and a Merry Christmas, etc. Not only to you folks who are listening to the show, but to CHRW, uh, the station here, and to the staff. um, To Ira Timothy, who's been operating the show for quite a while, uh, listening to uh, me every week here and operating the show from the other room there. Uh, Zoltan Haristi, who's not with with uh, CHRW anymore, but was uh, the program director when I came on, and he's with another radio station now, I understand. But he was a fellow that uh, operated a couple of my shows and also invited me to come on board as a volunteer uh, broadcaster. And, of course, uh, Alex G. here at the station, she uh, operated a couple of my shows, my very first one. Called her by the wrong name on the air when... When, when we did the first show, <laughs> and, uh, well, that was the show that uh, I raised a few uh, eyebrows about, too, at the time. Also, Michael Brown, who's the current program director, Grant Stein, uh, station manager, and, you know, basically they've pretty well allowed me to get my weekly venting fix here on uh, the radio station here at uh, CHRW. Just to give you some idea of, uh, you know, the show's been... It was an unexpected opportunity for me, I have to say that, when it arose right after finishing up with uh, Jim Chapman early in the year with uh, Left, Right, and Center. And I had no idea when I started doing this, really, what shape the show would take, how I would approach issues. And it kind of evolved uh, very much into what it is. And I think it's going to evolve a little bit more in in the coming year as I'm more familiar with what I'm doing. Um... I'm completely dependent, of course, here in the station upon the people around me uh, who look after all the other issues. I just walk in here, sit down, and I get to yak, and then I get up, and I walk right back out. But to uh, give you some of the things that I was thinking about talking about you know, in upcoming shows in, in the new year, I've been trying to basically not repeat issues too often on the show. There are certain themes that come up. Global warming, I I said, was one of them. Didn't do anything about that for a while. But still, uh, I generally like to get at differing angles, even on the same subject matter, as often as I can. I only do the show once a week, so I cannot be commenting on every daily happening and every daily uh, uh, nuance that occurs. And so I sort of have to pick uh, largely what interests me. If I don't find it interesting or significant in some way, I really can't really talk about it uh, too much. It's uh, another thing that the show has been for me has been sort of a a brush-up on a lot of the things that I talk about. I don't memorize all this stuff that I come in here and talk about. Sometimes I have to do a lot of research, and it refreshes my mind on a lot of the basics. If if you think back a couple of weeks, I did a show on even something like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and, and uh, you know, you know these things, and they're part of your being if you're aware of them, but you don't remember the details of everything, but you do remember the principles, perhaps, or the underlying message. And this show is really a lot about philosophy more than anything else. We've been, I mean, we've talked about television shows here on on the radio station. We've talked about politics. We've talked about uh, art, uh, a lot of things. But they're all sort of related because it's all part of the human condition, really. And And I try to look at it from a philosophic point of view, which I think is something that I can offer that I don't hear too many other people in in the community doing. Certainly over the next uh, year, I've got a lot of issues that we haven't even touched upon. I'll just give you an example of some of them. We haven't touched upon uh, some of the big ones, um, even the death penalty. I really haven't discussed that yet. Or abortion, those, those life and death issues that uh, so many people argue about. I'm getting into a little bit of a concept of my own, where in talking about uh, left and right, you know, this the name of this show is Just Right, and we've talked about uh, defining left and right in slightly different parameters, which I have done. But I also thought of looking at politics, 
politics, and I'll bring this up in the new year, in sense of colors, you know, the color of ideas. These are very representative. We've always known uh, that uh, liberal is red, you know, conservative is blue, and then there's green, and then there's black and white. So you can almost identify ideas by colors as well once they become associated with them. Certainly a lot of issues we want to talk about will be about economics, uh, we'll continue talking about uh, drug laws and religion and faith and all those kinds of things uh, that are not talked about that often, I think, in uh, in the normal radio media. One theme I also want to get into next year, perhaps over a few shows, is talking about this whole concept of uh, majority rule and versus democracy. But these are just touching on a few of the issues. Ira's given me the signal out there. I guess it's time for me to say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, have a great time, folks, and uh, join us again next week. Merry Christmas, Cratchit. I mean, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ira. And uh, we'll see you again next week in a rerun when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you in the new year. I think they should move Christmas to July. Then the stores aren't so crowded. (laughs) 